Now on Documentary on News Talk, producer Barbara Flood explores the beauty, power and wonder of the sea with coastal communities, marine ecologists and environmental activists in Blue Carbon, a sea story. We've actually know more about the surface of Mars or the moon than we know about the ocean around us. It's colossal what the oceans give us. I mean, the oceans are our protector. Without the oceans, I mean, we have nothing. If we don't look after them, I mean, everything else will, will, will disappear. The kelp forests are the forests of the ocean and they deserve to be treated with the same kind of care and with the same kind of foresight as we do with the, the trees on land. There is a, a massive shift that is needed. Number one, in seeing the enormous importance that the ocean plays in, uh, in our climate, as well as to individuals who enjoy the ocean every day. But also seeing that we really need to stop destroying it day in, day out, and, uh, and to allow it to recover. Letting our oceans recover from overfishing, pollution and the effects of climate change could be a priority for us, an island nation. But while much of the focus on the latter is on our actions on land, blue carbon is also a vital part of preventing ecological collapse. 83% of the carbon in the world circulates through our oceans. Not just whales, dolphins and porpoises, but our kelp, seagrass beds and salt marshes are also valuable carbon stores. The biodiversity that we have just in here, in this little cove that you're looking at here now, is colossal. And the carbon sequestering abilities of just even the kelp and the weed and stuff that you see here is colossal in compared to what terrestrial plants can, can, can do for us. You know. Niall McAllister is a marine biologist and together with his wife Gail, set up kayaking with the seals in Adragol Harbour, just beyond Glengariff in West Cork. Now, are you okay there? Yeah, this is great. Right. Okay, so I'm just going to paddle. <laughs> we paddle out to see some of the seals, otters and birds that live in this beautiful harbour on the Bear Peninsula. No, normally, actually, most people don't really tend to see the pups, certainly not the newborn pups, until they're uh, about maybe a month or two old. They, where they pup, They'll be in, in loads of seaweed, loads of uh, rack seaweed. So it's very difficult to even spot them and they'll just have their nose, their nostrils just <laughs> popping up out of the water. Um, so you, you'd be highly unlikely to even see them unless you're actually kind of hunting for them. If you do get close to them at all, they will, uh, they'll, they will go into the water and hide. But, I mean, myself and my wife rocked up here, what, 28 years ago now? Yeah. And uh, that was it. It was I was working in Kinsale, she was working in Kinsale. We were working for the Oyster, I was working for the Oyster Haven Centre. She was working for Sail Ireland Yacht Charters. And uh, we came down here and we said, oh, look at this place. <laughs> <laughs> we're staying. No, we're staying, that's it, yeah. <laughs> but we have um, freshwater pearl mussels in the rivers here. So it's a very clean harbour, um, and it also it gives it gives multiple types of habitat as well. That like we've got right up at the top end here where we're going to on the north side is mud flats. So that's really really good um, for um, uh, you know the, the the sort of lugworms and these smallets. 
and obviously by feeding on the mud they're cleaning out the mud and then those in turn then are fed on by lots of waders particularly winter time here is good is good for waders we get lots of mud waders and stuff coming in here and then as you move further out out towards the outer bay and you've got rocky shore sort of stuff rocky shore type of habitat and um, which is you know lots of weed kelp um, and then feeding on that then is you and you've got all of the, the, the sort of shells and soft mollusks and stuff like that that feed on that and uh, and then in turn obviously then you've got more animals that feed on those so there's the crabs and lobsters and things like that and and then also it's an area where where um, fish will spawn um, because the area uh, out is, is, is the kelp kelp beds seagrass beds all of those kind of things are very very important spawning grounds for uh, for fish um, so fish will actually come in here deliberately to spawn and is this a, an area of special conservation or anything it's not it's not it's not um, it's not an SAC at all it's not um, a special protected area either um, no there's not Just went down there, I don't see them. Yeah, this, they're, 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 <laughs> see the guy at the top of the rock there now is looking, oh, going, Oh, are they coming now? <laughs> he's huge, isn't he? He's a big, big fella, right? He's, he's, yeah. <laughs> they look so they look like, like big slugs, don't <laughs> they? <laughs> yeah, they do, yeah. They're not very dexterous, dexterous on land. In the water now, they're incredible. When you see them swimming, they're I just, know. I mean, unbelievably beautiful. When they're, when they're, they're moving on the rocks, yeah, they just. When they move they on the rocks, really... the only way they have is basically sort of like, is. is is, is, is um, clenching their stomach muscles oh. and that's kind of how they move wow. you'll see now they basically clench their stomach muscles and they have movement in their fore flippers but their hind flippers don't really do anything in the on land but their okay. hind flippers in the sea that's where all the propulsion comes from wow look at them they're just looking at us yeah he's kind of looking at you you want to get closer to me Oh, hi We need to sort of look at ourselves, look at our own and go, wow, what have we got? Like it is, it is really, really special. And especially like if you get a chance to go underwater, I mean, I was swimming, I went for a swim this morning in, um, in Lone Heart, which is just at the back of Bear Island there. And we were just looking at the seabed, just the bottom of the seabed. And it was just alive with animals now, just alive starfish and crabs and you know all kinds of animals and you know little guppies and fish and just like every time you moved a tiny little piece of weed or something like that you'd be scaring like half a dozen fish He's in. He's in. Hey. 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 He's quite a young one. See this guy here? He's in the pup there now. Quite young. It's so funny with their heads just come up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Feel surrounded like. Yeah. But you see they're now once they're in the water, they, they can be they can be very curious and they'll come up. Um, but when they're on land they that's when they're obviously very susceptible to being predated on. 
Okay. So they, so they feel vulnerable. They're very vulnerable. Yeah. Obviously, they can't. They don't move as, as quickly on land. But once they're in the water, I mean, they're just. I mean, it's un- unbelievable to see them when you see them swimming in the water. Look how close he is. He is like... Yeah. <laughs> he, the pup, is very, very curious of us. And the mum is just kind of sort of... Listen, don't get too close now. Yeah, she's, she's staying close to him. Yeah. Yeah. What noise do they make? <laughs> like... Uh, normally, you let you... Because you can hear them sometimes, like, when they're coming, they kind of... Like, And, and then occasionally they'll be kind of snorting, like if there's sometimes one has pulled up on a rock and somebody else decides that they want to be on the same rock, they'll kind of snort that kind of <laughs> at each other. They're just kind of snorting sound. And then underwater, it's kind of a, they kind of have a barking sound. It's a um, very peculiar sound, underwater sound that they make. So we'll head over to the island. This is Orthon's Island here now. We have, you can see there, there's a lot of breeding birds on there. Oyster catchers, they're ah, called, okay. and they they can be very noisy. Yeah, especially if you go close to their their breeding there as well. Oh, this is so unbelievable, spot, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I thought maybe if we saw one or two, like be from a distance, I didn't oh, right. think they'd be that close. Oh like, no, they no no amazing. no. Yeah, and I mean, like I say, some days, you know, like you could see, you'd easily see thirty or forty of them. We've got um, Kieran and uh, Jason there just sorting their catch out on the slipway. So they're local fishermen. Hey Kieran, how are you? Not too bad. Another beautiful day, isn't it? Brilliant, thanks. You're a fisherman, are you? We are. Have you done it like all your life? Kind we of sure have. We grew up with it. And my granddad and everything, yeah, so it's... Really? We're, uh, you could say we're third generation, I suppose. Wow. Do you catch much today? I've got some brown crab and a few lobsters. Nice. So we were around the bay. So we were. What do you think about the, the plans to extract the, the kelp around here? Um, to be quite honest with you, uh, we're totally against it. We've been against it uh, ever since the application. Uh, had been or that we heard about this um it would be devastating to our fishery really uh, because lobsters are in amongst the kelp and um we've i suppose in essence it would be like taking away your house that's where the lobsters live so if you take away their house or how are they going to survive or their means of surviving their you know their whole the whole ecosystem of, of where where they are. You know, not alone are they going to take away the seaweed, but they're going to do terrible damage to the fish that are around the seaweed. They're all within the seaweed, you know, so it's completely unnatural. And from our point of view, we would be 100% against it.
anything we can do to to keep this place as beautiful as it is you know keep the likes of Kieran and Jason working here myself you know my family you know I mean it's 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 been a really really boom for me well boom in, in in terms of quality of life for what it's given myself my family my wife my kids you know and uh, we really should be looking after it Kayaking with the seals in Adrigal is open all summer. You can find them at wildatlanticwildlife.ie. Huge thanks to Niall McAllister for bringing me out on the canoe. At the end there, you heard fisherman Kieran O'Shea give his opinion on the plans to extract nearly 2,000 acres of kelp from Bantry Bay. We'll hear more about the campaign opposing this extraction in a few minutes. But first, Porrick Fogarty, ecologist, environmental scientist and campaigns officer for the Irish Wildlife Trust. There's a phenomenon called the shifting baseline syndrome. And that basically means that, you know, the, 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 as, as we remember it in our lifetimes, um, we think that is healthy, whereas we have no idea what the abundance in the ocean was like a generation ago uh, before that. And uh, I mean, an example is, for instance, I mean, I'm, I'm in my late 40s. I remember eating cod at least once a week. Uh, I live in Dublin. That cod came from Hoth. Uh, fish like whiting, like place. These were eaten all the time. And now they're simply not there anymore. Park Fogarty's book, Whittled Away, Ireland's Vanishing Nature, is a depressing read. He lays out the results of overfishing, destructive fishing practices like bottom trawling where the entire seabed is dredged up. He also covers the extinction of our native oysters and many species of fish. But even in that so short few decades, we have emptied out the sea and people don't don't realise uh, that, you know, species like cod, uh, which grows the size of a dinner table, um, has has basically ceased to exist from a commercial point of view. Now, they're still out there, but nobody misses them. Nobody feels that this is a great tragedy. You see campaigns, for instance, about, you know, saving the curlews on land. And, and this is this is obviously very important. But you don't see any of those kind of campaigns for fish in the sea. Um, and they're just as much wildlife as, as the birds uh, and other animals that we have on land. I ask Fogarty, how his ideas on rewilding could be applied to our seas? It's such an easy thing to do. Basically, you just stop uh, destroying it and, uh, and, and the life will, will come back to it. There's very strong lobbying by uh, the fishing industry uh, to maintain the status quo. And so for some reason, uh, protecting the ocean hasn't been a priority. Parik Fogarty of the Irish Wildlife Trust. We'll hear more from Parik later in the programme. Back out west, I also met up with Dolph Daunt and Tomás O'Sullivan of the Bantry Bay Protect Our Native Kelp Forest Group, who've been active in this campaign for many years. My name is Dolph Daunt um, and I'm from Bantry Bay Protect Our Native Kelp Forest Campaign. They're opposing a plan to suck up 2,000 acres of native wild kelp in order to extract two chemical compounds to add to pig feed. And according to Daunt, this is an untested method of taking out seaweed. There is mechanical harvesting in Norway and in France, but they use different methods. This is the first time that a suction method is being used. And so basically 
not only the seaweed gets sucked up, but also everything that lives in it. And of course, there we have the problem because we say there's loads of life in it and the developer says there's nothing lives in there. One of the arguments that has been used by the developer in this case is that Bantry Bay is quite huge. Bantry Bay is massive and we're only taking 2,000 acres out of it. So that's an argument that he's putting forward saying, I'm only taking a tiny proportion of the size of the bay. And that'd be correct. But at the same time, kelp needs light to grow. It's a seaweed, so it needs light to grow. And Bantry Bay is mostly 40 metres in depth and seaweed grows to about 20 metres. So you'll get very little seaweed below 20 metres because of the light. It can't get down there. So basically... All of the seaweed is in the top 10, 15 metres, um, especially inside here in the bay, like 10, 15 metres and that's it. He's taking a small, tiny percentage if you take the whole area of the bay. But if you look at the areas where the kelp or seaweed grows and it's out of this that he will take 2,000 acres. So it's a big proportion if you look at it just where seaweed grows. It all started, I suppose, back in, in February of 2017 when an eco-eye programme um, called Seaweed Matters was aired. And basically people in Bantry saw this programme and realised that they had no idea what was being proposed. And so then a, a small group started forming and that's when it started building. Tomás O'Sullivan has also been active in the campaign to protect the kelp forest. That was one of the, the learning experiences for us because officially there was public consultation as mandated by law. But the public consultation, as far as we can determine, um, consisted of a folder that was inside in the filing cabinet in the Garda station for three weeks over Christmas. And this is one of the things that has always annoyed me. A small little notice in the Southern Star, the local newspaper, which just said that BioAtlantis is applying um, for um, a licence to... Uh, occupy a certain part of the foreshore in order to harvest seaweed. And anybody who saw that, like, in their right mind, would read it and say, oh, that's someone just going down to a bit of the shore and maybe cutting a few hundred metres or something like that. No mention of mechanical extraction, no mention of an experimental procedure, no mention that this was almost 2,000 acres at all. That was the public consultation. And, of course, even if somebody had seen it in the star, nobody went in, looked at the file, you know, like there, there was no knowledge in the community from that little notice that this was what was being proposed. The only option we've had, because this is a licence granted under the Foreshore Act 1933, um, the only option we have to appeal or to, to try and prevent it going ahead is through the High Court. You know, it shouldn't be that difficult to mount a case to protect the ecosystem of our local environment. One of the things that's been talked about is SACs and SPAs, so special areas of conservation and special protection areas. And in 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 these licensed zones, um, you're within a few centimetres of an SPA on one side of the bay and an SAC on the other side of the bay. And technically, what's supposed to happen is you're supposed to have a thing called an appropriate assessment to judge whether there is a possible impact, whether negative or positive, but you, you're supposed to do an appropriate assessment to see you know, can this development have any or works have any impact on the SAC or SP? And that was never done. That was never carried out. And we argued in the High Court that this was a serious issue. And that if you look at the Habitats Directive 6.3, it states clearly that you should have a look at the impact. And so this still hangs up in the air. But it is like, I think, very important from our point of view and from a European law point of view, European environmental law point of view, that this is recognised, that this should have been done and it wasn't. 
you've been quite successful so far, would you say? Oh, yeah. We, we have been very successful. I mean, one of the reasons why we've been successful is because it has um, brought together um, environmental types. It has brought together fishermen. It has brought together conservatives and, and, and all political parties are behind us. There is nobody on the other side except the developer. You know, in some ways, the bay belongs to everyone in the community. I mean, we can, you know, we get up in the morning, we see what's there in front of us so that there's a sense of ownership all around the shore of the bay that like this is something we hold in common. Something that endangers the, the health and the safety of the bay is something that concerns all of us. On the larger environmental question that like kelp is a carbon sink, so, you know, it is a significant element of the fight against global warming, the fight against uh, climate change. As a plant, it photosynthesizes, it sucks in the carbon dioxide, and a lot of the kelp is washed out into the deep ocean buried in the mud. That's how it functions as a carbon sink. So this proposal to, to hoover up, to cut up 2,000 acres of it is, is not going to, you know, do, do us any good at all on, on all kinds of levels. Yeah, if, if somebody was about to cut down the equivalent of a forest the size of Phoenix Park, mm -hmm. there would be uproar. And rightly so, yeah. And and in essence, it, I mean, the kelp forests are the forests of the ocean and they deserve to be treated and, and we deserve to be smart enough to treat them with the same kind of care and with the same kind of foresight as we do with the, the trees on land. That was Thomas O'Sullivan and Dolph Daunt of the Bantry Bay Protect Our Native Kelp Forest campaign. You can find out more information at bantrybaykelpforest.com. The biotech company BioAtlantis was in contact with News Talk in relation to the matter and would like the following points noted in response. Scientific studies show that seaweed has a very limited role, if any, in carbon sequestration. Phytoplankton accounts for over 97% of marine photosynthesis of carbon and is therefore the main contributor to carbon sequestration in the ocean, while seaweed accounts for less than 3%. A recent report commissioned by the Marine Institute and co-authored by scientists in University of Galway and University College Dublin also suggests that the sequestration of carbon from Irish kelp species may be limited as it's largely washed ashore to decay. BioAtlantis conveyed their position on the impact harvesting seaweed may have on fish and stated that commercial fish and shellfish in Ireland do not depend on kelp and there is no basis to suggest they will be affected. Finally, they asked us to clarify that the licence application process was deemed fully compliant and in order, as determined in the courts. You're listening to Documentary on News Talk. It's not only trees that hold carbon, but, you know, animals hold carbon as well. And if marine life was to be restored, you know, that would store a huge amount of carbon as well as restoring uh, the vitally important biodiversity in the ocean. Parik Fogarty, ecologist, environmental scientist and campaigns officer for the Irish Wildlife Trust, who you heard earlier in the programme. 
you know, it's so obvious that this is one of the easiest, quickest wins that we could do uh, is to protect the ocean. Because remember, I mean, a lot of our, our, our efforts are focused on land, but the sea is three quarters of the earth nearly. Um, it's absolutely vast. And uh, I think, you know, protecting the ocean is probably the quickest, easiest thing we could do for climate and biodiversity. I asked him about the biggest threat that our seas are facing that of overfishing and destructive fishing practices and what he thinks could be done to stop them. 80% of the boats in Ireland are, are small boats. They're, they're not big super trawlers. They're, they're not going far out to sea. Uh, they're small boats. They tend to be catching, you know, crabs and lobsters. And uh, they are potentially very low impact, uh, these smaller boats. So actually, I think you could you could close down industrial fishing so that's the you know the big boats um without destroying fishing and without destroying the cultural heritage or the economic importance of um of fishing along our coast but i think it is possible to end industrial fishing uh to create marine protected areas uh you know where no fishing at all is is permitted and that would really allow marine life to recover but at the moment at the 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 ocean really is a black hole when it comes to our conservation efforts. We can look on land and we can see, albeit small scale efforts to restore bogs, restore forests or to farm in a nature friendly way. But uh, once we get to the, the, the shoreline, absolutely nothing is happening. So this is quite a, a depressing area to work in if you're, if you're looking at marine conservation. Also, there is the impression that, uh, you know, certainly the narrative over the last years has been, you know, Ireland joined the European Union and then we basically gave our fishing rights to foreign countries and uh, and the European Union has robbed us of all our fish. Now, there's, there, there is an element of, of truth to that, but... Um, that only applies to uh, what's known as the offshore area. So basically beyond, it depends, maybe between 6 and 12 nautical miles, uh, you're into area of the common fisheries policy, which is run by the EU and which has been completely disastrous for marine life. But closer to the shore, um, that doesn't apply. And, uh, and the Irish government and the Irish state has an awful lot of control over what happens in that, in that inshore area. We absolutely need marine protected areas. We need to be protecting a minimum uh, of 30% by the end of this decade. That is what the scientists say. But the scientists are actually thinking we probably need to be protecting about half of our of our ocean in order to uh, protect biodiversity. So we need to be uh, designating large areas. But of course, designation on its own is, is a, a meaningless exercise if you don't get the actual management um, and the control and the enforcement and all the, the monitoring and all the other things that, that go with it. So um, it's absolutely doable. It's, uh, it's, it's, it is, a, it is a, a very quick win in my view, uh, but, uh, but we just haven't seen the political appetite to do it yet. And I mean, education is so central to all of these things. And we see that, you know, people actually do care about the ocean, you know, when when they're told about it and they're told, you know, this is what's happening. People are not happy to see uh, uh, our governments, uh, you know, actively pursue policies that are destroying them. And we've shown that. I mean, we did we did public consultation efforts around marine protected areas and there was an enormous response. And it's something that people want. But again, we then run into um 
just the old power structures about how these things happen. Basically, very small number of people that represent, you know, a handful of commercial interests, a handful of civil servants, basically deciding how the ocean is used and basically ignoring, uh, you know, public opinion or the greater public good at the end of the day. There is a, a massive shift that is needed. Number one, in seeing the enormous uh, uh, importance that the ocean plays in uh, in our climate, as well as to individuals who enjoy the ocean every day, um, but also seeing that we really need to stop destroying it uh, day in, day out, and uh, and to allow it to recover. That was Park Fogarty, author of Whittled Away: Ireland's Vanishing Nature and Campaign Manager for the Irish Wildlife Trust, iwt.ie. So my name is Shazia and I'm a marine biologist based at the Lifetime Lab. Shazia Wahid facilitates the Explorers Education Programme at the Lifetime Lab in Cork City. Part of the Explorers Education Programme involves going out to schools and showing the children some of the many plants and creatures that live in the sea. They also help the kids create a project related to some aspect of the ocean. It could be anything about, you know, general sea life to, I suppose, the threats facing the ocean, like plastic pollution or overfishing. Other modules we do include the what we call the workshop module. Um, for that one, uh, it's really nice because the kids come to us and we have a lovely setup with native sea life that we get on loan from Galway Aquarium. And of course, we'd have the specimens again to show them a big map. Uh, of the seafloor, you know, a 3D map, you know, and kind of discuss with them the ocean depths and I suppose the huge sea area we have offshore of Ireland, which re- they really enjoy because um, we actually have a sea area 10 times bigger than the land area, which even the teachers and most adults wouldn't know about. And this year, actually, for the first time, we got to do sea safaris as well. So we got to bring a number of classes down to um, Fountainstone Beach and um, actually got them on the shore looking at what's there. Um, they wouldn't have known, I suppose, to look for the animals or they weren't aware of the kind of diversity that was there or how to go about finding them on the beach even. You know, quite a few teachers said that uh, the kids had, had told them stories of, of how they brought their parents back to the beach afterwards, you know, and um, was able to point out the different animals to them, which was fab, you know, because that's exactly what we want to hear, you know, is that... Um, you know, is that we maybe spark an interest in it uh, from an early age. A few weeks ago then as well, also for the first time uh, this year, which was great, um, I did, in uh, it was run by West Cork Education Centre, a uh, teacher training course um, down in Bantry. Um, and that was fab. So it was like a mixture of class and beach uh, time, basically, you know, introducing them to the different seaweeds and animals so that they're familiar with them and that they're confident, you know, to then bring it um, into the classroom and share what they've learned, you know, with the, with the kids afterwards. Um, and yeah, they, they seemed really interested. We had some great discussions in class, you know, about fisheries and I suppose seafood and all I suppose a wide range of different topics. Um, that are, are very current, you know, and very relevant. There is a lot more diversity in the sea than there is on land. So I suppose it lends more to the imagination. And I think what's great about that is, like, I, I've never come across a class, you know, doing the explorers program that haven't 
gotten really into in, into it and gotten really enthusiastic about it you know there's just so many different shapes and sizes of different ocean animals that you know it really captures their imagination it's kind of just make, raising awareness about how much we need it you know from the air we breathe to the water we drink and the food we eat i mean it provides over half the oxygen we breathe it's basically a habitat for so many different life forms, which are still undiscovered, you know? Um, and we've only discovered about 5% of the ocean in total, uh, which blows kids' minds, you know, to say that when we kind of say, look, we've actually know more about the surface of Mars or the moon than we know about the ocean around us. You know, it's important for kids um, to see how important it is and how fragile it is as well, you know? And I think it's becoming more and more obvious, like the kind of, I suppose, the damage we're doing to the oceans. I suppose getting across the message that it's not just damaging the ocean, but it's also, you know, damaging ourselves ultimately as well. That was Shazia Wahid, marine biologist with the Lifetime Lab in Cork. The Explorers programme offers free courses to children and teachers in schools in coastal counties around Ireland. Check out the Marine Institute, marine.ie, for details in your county. Staying in Cork, I'm heading out on a boat with Colin Barnes and his Cork Whale Watch tour. Whales play such a vital role in the marine ecosystem, providing half of the oxygen we breathe. They also sequester hundreds of thousands of tonnes of carbon each year. Colin has been involved in research projects with the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group for many years. I came here from the UK 50 years ago in October to take up fishing here, which I did for 32 years and got fed up with it and decided to take up what we're doing now, whale watching. Why do you love it so much? Why is it, do you think? I don't know, just I had a passion for natural history from the word go when I was a little kid. So um, anything aquatic life then I found more fascinating than anything else and because it was so unexplored and nobody could answer any questions, uh, that appealed to me, the idea that you'd be exploring what goes on underwater really. And I was full of questions when I was a little kid that nobody could answer, so uh, I set about teaching myself, you know, what happens at sea. Every chance I got, I was down rummaging in rock pools and <laughs> fishing, rod and line fishing and things like that, pushing shrimp nets about, just, just learning what lives in the sea. I've mapped all the seabed here and fished all over it up to about 100 miles outshore. Wow. Um, but I love what I'm doing now. Every day is different. We never know what we're going to see or where we're going on any one day. And If it was the same every day, I'd get bored, I think. But it's never boring. It's like that. You never know what you're going to see next. And if you spot things, do you report them to the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group? Yeah, always. Yeah. yeah. Every single sighting, position and species, I've wrote down for the last 22 years. And that's useful because you have a, a chronological record of where and when there were animals about. 
Do you think we do enough to protect them? No, not at all. Desperately short of um, marine protected areas. There's now an organisation called Fair Seas that are about to change all that. And Ireland is obliged, as part of its agreements with Europe, to have marine protected areas where species can flourish, you know, just protected from any destructive elements like fishing or anything else. So um, that'll all change in the next year or two, we hope. Starting from Reen Pier Union Hall, we see lots of seals and seabirds as we set off. The last time out in the boat, I saw porpoises and a small basking shark, but every trip is different. One really lovely aspect to this boat tour is Colin's enthusiasm and knowledge about everything we see. Something extraordinary about grey seals, when you see one up on the surface taking air, when it dives, it empties its lungs and dives with no air in it at all. Whales, dolphins, us, you take a deep breath to go under. So how does that work when they get down then? They have have super rich haemoglobin in their blood, about two and a half times what we have. They saturate themselves with oxygen and then exhale all the air they've got and do ten minutes underwater. Colin's spotter, Innes, has just seen a minky whale in the distance. Everyone on the boat is on high alert, scanning for the distinctive blow of water and air. We head further out to sea. Look, look, they're under us. Look, 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 look. So many dolphins. <laughs> Leaping alongside the boat, and baby ones too, trying to jump like the bigger ones and kind of belly flopping into the water. What is it about dolphins that makes you feel so happy? At this stage, I could have gone home very happy. But the day is going to get even better. Innes has just seen three fin whales ahead. We race in their direction at full throttle. If anyone sees a blow, shout. Okay. Colin cuts the engine. 
We scan again for the elusive flow of air and water. So much Shift. Yeah. Oh my god. What, what kind of one is that, Colin? These are three females. The only thing bigger than them ever on planet Earth is blue lines. Oh. A little bit slower. You can see their fins and everything. Yeah, that's their tail. The and tail. they grab fish, they roll over on one side. Fin whales are the only mammal on planet Earth that's asymmetrically marked. Face here, white. This side, black. And when they go for fish, it's always white side down. It probably helps them get more fish in the mouth. Just took a good shot of fish there. Wow. Have another go. They wait for dolphins to round up a shoal and come in like that and grab it. There were dolphins there, did you hear them? Dolphins skitter along on top of them like they do with a boat. There'd be a whale right under them probably now. It's hard to describe how breathtaking they are up close. Dubbed the greyhounds of the sea for their speed and sleek bodies, they're the second largest animal to ever live on Earth. The fin whale sounds are the lowest frequency sounds by any animal on Earth. Of course, we can't hear them now, but this is what they sound like. A recording by the US National Oceanic Administration, where they speeded up the original sound ten times. Eventually we start heading back to shore, marvelling at what we've just seen. And then... Again, everyone keeps a lookout for any blows. Ridiculous round pectoral chins, they look like little paddles, they're totally round, different to any other animal. Most animals have pointed fins, but if they jump you'll see their fins. Yeah. Big round dark paddles. I was looking out, I saw these two black things amongst the birds. What's that? Why do get binoculars to be short? Colin radios the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group and his friend Michal, who runs a whale watching boat out of Baltimore. Yeah, just under If we had a hydrophone and were underwater, this might be what we could hear right now. These recordings were made by the National Park Service in Alaska. Calls and whistles are used by the whales to communicate with each other, 
while the clicks are mostly used in echolocation, a bit like bats, an acoustic field of vision. Eventually Colin has to turn the boat back towards shore. Everyone's still slightly stunned that we saw not just minke whales, but fin whales and killer whales, also known as orcas. Amazing day. Absolutely super. Couldn't have been better. As long as no one's got a plane to catch or something like that, we'd stay out a bit longer, but that was worth seeing. Oh, absolutely. We did watch fin whales one night in the dark, but they weren't doing much. I was coming in from long range angling trip, and in the moonlight, we could see them all blowing right in front of us. So just stopped and watched them for a minute, but they weren't doing much, just cruising slowly, doing nothing. Thanks so much, Colin. That was amazing. Thanks for the You normally get full of us. No. We're just so happy. More than happy. That was Colin Barnes of the Cork Whale Watch, who operates out of Union Hall near Lepp in West Cork. Thanks also to Shazia Wahid, marine biologist with the Explorers Programme, Dolph Daunt and Thomas O'Sullivan of the Bantry Bay Protect Our Native Kelp Forest Campaign, Kieran O'Shea, lobster fisherman, Niall McAllister, marine biologist, who set up sea kayaking with the seals in Adragol, West Cork, and Porrick Fogarty of the Irish Wildlife Trust, author of Whittled Away, Ireland's Vanishing Nature, who will leave with the final words. We ultimately have to make it uh, politically costly for politicians to ignore uh, environmental protection like this. We need, obviously, uh, citizens to be active and aware, but we also need politicians to get on and do the things that need to be done. Blue Carbon, A Sea Story, was produced by Barbara Flood and was supported by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland under the Sound and Vision Scheme. For more documentaries, visit Newstalk.com.